Well, hello there. It is time for the Weekend Sports Cars Show. It's being a product of a fine gentleman by the name of Graham Goodwin, a less fine person in myself, Marshall Pruitt. We say thank you, as always, to our partners at Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com for all that we do here, Graham. Should we play Where in the World Are You, or have we kind of sort of figured that out coming off of a busy back-to-back weekend stretch for you of Asian Le Mans Series coverage? I think we know where you are, so that's good. A couple of quick show (laughs) notes here before we get rolling, my friend. We have lots to talk about on the Asian Le Mans Series front. So much so, things being so busy that we had to push back our intended recording window for this show It was last week, well, to this week. So we have all your questions. We're going to get to as many as we can. We're also, Graham, going to ask you to pretend to be our readers, pretend to send in some of their questions involving Mm -hmm. last weekend's race, knowing that what they did send in involved the prior weekend's event. But before we get there, my friend... Not a total shocker. Actually, we've mentioned it on the show a couple times. We thought it was coming, and I heard uh, that it might be imminent. And, hey, what do you know? Our friends at the ACO in the FI World Endurance Championship, they have themselves a shiny new manufacturer coming to Le Mans Hypercar. This just happened. We're recording this shortly after that news was confirmed. So, we're going to have to do the pretend our listeners are sending us in questions and answer them up front. So where <laughs> shall we start, Graham? You get the prancing horse coming in 2023. Well, uh, well let's, let's say it as it is. You, uh, I think it's fair to say, confirm this on the Week at IndyCars. Um, we talked about it, I think, two weeks ago on the show, uh, that I have a very good source that had told me uh, that this was pretty much certain to be coming. Didn't at that stage know about timing, but uh, just a hour or two ago, um, in it lands, short statement from Ferrari, that Ferrari will be coming to Le Mans and to the FIWC in 2023 with a car built to the Le Mans hypercar regulations. Now, we talked about this in the round, MP, uh, quite a lot about what would it take for a tipping point, uh, you know, Le Mans hypercar has been just the most bizarre set of circumstances. It's gone from being the the the, the, the brave new thing that's going to absolutely sweep it and change everything to dead in the water and right back again. This is and, the stabilizing agent. This is granted not as if Peugeot yep. and Toyota and uh, if we're talking bringing the fight to the big big manufacturers, uh, SCG. Uh, Glickenhaus yep. uh, or Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus. I apologize. The those two major brands plus the Challenger brand. I mean, that's a pretty good thing right there. But it wasn't exactly a bombastic thing. Ferrari makes this a big deal. It does, it does. and you you wonder right at this moment. There's there's two questions in my mind. First thing to say is, this is astonishingly good news for sports car racing. And this is going to be an announcement, by the way, that reverberates way beyond our little niche in motorsport. This is a very significant um, 
step forward for the whole of the convergence process and it's going to have ripples everywhere talking about the ripples outside of sports car racing imagine for a moment who might be involved in this program in terms of the driving talent i find it inconceivable that we won't see ferrari formula one talent in those cars at some point um should we confirm they've they've hired a former uh grand am prototype constructor picchio (laughs) to build the new ferrari hypercars (laughs) <laughs> joe joe kidding haha uh-huh, humor um yeah yeah but on you the watch for the horse's head at the bottom of your bed tonight uh, but on the bottom <clears throat> bottom surface beneath all this the biggest question graham will be what is this program for ferrari is it a works true works 100%. effort or 100%. will this be works plus customers we're going to build two or i shouldn't say build two but we're going to field two like a toyota but we have no intent of toyota's hypercar being mass produced sold to any and all who want it do we do you think ferrari's going to go that route or do you foresee well, a customer angle too right first and foremost there's zero doubt in my mind that this is a hundred percent a factory effort from ferrari 100 percent. there will i'm sure be commercial backing in fact i've already fielded a couple of calls this evening indicating where some of that commercial backing might be coming from familiar names to people in sports car racing <clears throat> but uh that ferrari no doubt in my mind this is going to be a um fundamentally a factory uh run and developed effort it's not going to be a 333 sp it's not that um so, which means I think I'm right. The first factory entered top level prototype at Le Mans since 1973. I think that's right. Uh, put that aside. Customer cars. We know that um, Le Mans hypercar is substantially more expensive than LMDH, but this again is where this could be a mold breaker. Why? Because there is probably one brand and only one brand where there is a customer base with the financial buying power and the will to invest at that level in a customer program and that's ferrari so could you see in year two year three there being selected customer cars i think you possibly could i genuinely think you could it's not the same as a gt car because these are cars that could be looking to win significant races around the world um you know outright end of story outright so You're getting choked up see, speaking about it it's a beautiful thing i'm getting very, I'm getting very emotional but no it is i think it's an absolute game changer we, we've discussed that it would be should it happen a game changer um i think that's exactly what we're looking at here we're going to hear in the coming weeks i know some more details about the program and you know that is a, it is a pretty mouth-watering prospect as to what that might involve but then you've got the other point to, to, to think about here, with the other area where this is where your point of view comes into play, MP, which is I think this is probably a game changer about the relationship between ACO and IMSA and the relationship that IMSA have got with the LMH rule set. Is this the thing that tips the scale? That means that they will have to look very, very, very carefully indeed at taking on LMH alongside LMDH, maybe not from 23, but maybe from 24 when the balance of performance process is bedded in and there are real cars in play. Is this the point? 
Yeah, you raise a great point. The first thing that came to mind uh, when this was, again, confirmed, a little bit of a, a worst-kept secret, but we know that IMSA's stance has been hard and unwavering on the topic of convergence. We know this from background discussions. This isn't something that they've taking, taken a public hard line with. But for those who haven't followed all of the back and forth, we have shortly the debut of Le Mans Hypercar as a class. So it's happening now, 2021. Again, most of you know that. This is debuting now, coming up soon. Toyota Glickenhaus, which they're meant to be testing, I think, right now at Valalunga, uh, if not within a day or so. They'll be on track. We know that we're going to have two LMH uh, models going head-to-head. We know that Peugeot is coming here soon, so they won't be in for the first year. They'll be in for the second year. We know that Ferrari, based on their announcement, says they'll be ready to go in 23, which coincidentally is when IMSA's new formula, LMDH, makes its debut. LMDH, been allowed from the outset to participate in the WEC and the 24 Hours of Le Mans. There has not been a mutual agreement that each other's formula can play on both fronts. So just a little bit of quick background there. IMSA has not said, yes, the moment we go live with our LMDHs in 2023, your LMHs can be here Daytona, Sebring, wherever, any and all races, just like you've said our formula can play over there. Well, uh, we're not saying your formula can play over here immediately. That's been their stance. I understand it, and I don't disagree with it. Why? Again, overstating the obvious, by the time IMSA's new formula debuts uh, a little under two years from now, LMH will have the better part of two years' experience The approach from IMSA is one of let us get a year, at least a year of experience with our cars, figure out what's what. We know, Graham, so far we've had Acura, Audi, and Porsche commit. I expect at least two more to come, if not uh, three more to come. So I think we're going to have between five and six manufacturers for LMDH when it launches in 23. IMSA's approach, closed-door approach to hypercar, very straightforward. Hey, you're going to have a head start on us, a considerable one. Let us run ours, figure out what they do and don't do well, as we would nor- we would expect, Graham. Just as we're going to find in Hypercar, there are going to be at least one or two LMDH models that don't measure up to the rest, are going to need some redevelopment, going to need something. It's just expected. IMSA's approach is let us get through at least that first year. Then we can possibly consider blending these two very different formulas together to vie for overall wins in North American endurance racing. So here we have Ferrari. You go, wow. Well, it would be silly for IMSA to not want a big name like Ferrari to be racing in the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I just don't think that's going to change their tack whatsoever. 
about give us at least a year to figure out our stuff before yep. we try and put them together. So that's, again, I think if there was any areas of doubt as to whether hypercar should be something embraced by IMSA to play with its cars, uh, I, I would say that the name Ferrari should definitely erase any doubters that this needs to happen. There's one other aspect to this too, Graham, which is this is the first manufacturer that is shared between both organizations. Uh, I should say all three, ACO slash WC and IMSA. Mm -hmm. This is the first one that plays in both major championships that has committed to hypercar that has a strong factory involvement with IMSA as well as a lever they could pull to apply pressure to expedite or not wait beyond one year to try and balance and have these cars running together. You could say, well, hey, wait a minute. Toyota is obviously in WC and their sub-brand Lexus is competing in IMSA. Isn't there a lever there? No. Uh, Two totally different worlds, two totally different houses. If Toyota were to come over and compete in IMSA in its top class against LMDHs, that's great, but uh, there's no lever for Toyota USA slash Lexus to pull to apply hypercar pressure on IMSA. This is really a big thing. Uh, this is really a big, big thing for uh, those who want to see these vehicles compete against one another. Ferrari now, you can absolutely guarantee, Graham, is going to be knocking even harder on IMSA's door saying, Hi! <laughs> uh, we we don't even know what the car is going to be called. We don't know who's going to drive it. We don't know anything yet, but we know we're going to be there in 23 in WEC. Please make sure we have an invitation to come to Daytona, to Sebring, to wherever in 24. It, it is, MP, I think, the single most, single most exciting um, announcement we've seen since that convergence project uh, uh, was announced in Daytona over a year ago. And yes, it is only one brand, and yes, it probably is maybe only two cars, but it is because it's that brand, because all the things you said around the, if you like, the joint partnership uh, status that they, they, they have with all the major players. And then beyond that, They've also, because it's Ferrari, effectively drawn a great big target on their own back that it gives a another brand on top of Audi with their enormous endurance heritage, on top of Porsche with their enormous endurance heritage, on top of Toyota with their enormous endurance heritage, and on top of Peugeot with their enormous uh, endurance heritage, and plus Honda, plus, as you say, the Challenger brand uh, of Glickenhaus. That's got to be an encouragement for anybody that might be sitting on the fence. It's a reason to do it rather than not to do it. Not only could you win Le Mans or win Daytona or win World and North American Championships, you can beat Ferrari in doing it. That has got to be a very big deal indeed. Well, those deals are big, and I'm happy. Let's close on the Ferrari angle here, Graham, before we uh, move on to... Uh, some other goodies. Let's close on what this means to the ACO and WEC. No disrespect to Peugeot, to Toyota, our pal Jim Glickenhaus, any other brands that may join in. But this really is the attention getter. And I know you go, 
duh mm-hmm. it's ferrari of course it's going to bring headlines and attention we know that part but this is the sexiness factor the instagram if there was an instagram signing this is it that kind of flashy lights wow okay uh this is going to draw people in i don't know how many i'm not pretending that all of a sudden Endurance mm-hmm. racing is going to become the, the world's most popular sport, but this is the kind of thing that you dream of. Just as IndyCar pushed so hard for a year or more to try and get Ferrari in as a engine supplier starting in 2023, this is something where beyond what they can do with the vehicles and yada, 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 the presence of this brand does things unlike any other in motor racing. Porsche might yep. be the only one that's close, but again, just in terms of that lights, camera, action, Hollywood feel, Ferrari does something for WC's vision of this hypercar formula and the ACO's vision for this formula that no other brand has been able to do uh, or frankly will be able to do Tell me about this, brother, because I have to feel you woke up and, and felt, wow, okay, this is what we'd hoped it would be and wasn't, but now all of a sudden it is. Um, I think the, the answer is it's exactly that. It's it's another reason for all of us that love sports car racing to feel that bit better about it and what's a difficult time. But I, I, I'd go a little further than you prepared to let yourself go in this one. I think this is a game changer. I think this is going to draw a very substantial new audience to sports car racing globally. I think this changes, if not everything, then certainly a very substantial proportion of the overall picture. It absolutely adds the potential for a better return on investment for anybody involved in the whole race, not just for Ferrari, but everybody else, because Ferrari's there. It's it's a massive, massive brand on a global scale and either they go there and they show well and they win or someone else beats them. And that's the point. It's that um, it's that if you like the cheap headlines, you know what you want. If you're let's say you're Jim Glickenhouse, you want a, a headline that says I've won Le Mans. But if you don't win Le Mans and you come second, Glickenhouse comes second, but beats Ferrari, beats Ferrari. That in itself is a very worthy uh, headline. I think I'll call it today that um, this cements the 2023 Le Mans 24 hours in its centenary year as having the potential to be one of the biggest sporting events in history. I genuinely think it uh, of any sort of a single venue, single event happening. I think Le Mans in its centenary year, I, I bitterly regret not having come up with a plan to go and see the 100th Indy 500. How big was that, Marshall? Massive. Okay. Tell me you think this isn't going to be bigger. I think it's going to be darn exciting. I don't know if it's going to be all the way up there compared to, say, a uh, 24-hour race of uh, Citroën de Chevaux. But I think <laughs> it's going to be okay. You know, I don't want to go as far as you. You're a little, little crazy here. But let's do this. We have some other things to talk about. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of questions that come out of what we've just uh, experienced in the Middle East and uh, 
four races, as I say, in the United Arab Emirates on two circuits we've never been to before with that form of racing. We have had Graventic races in Dubai. We've had the Gulf 12 hours at Yas Marina and other bits and pieces. But this was the first time to have true mixed class sports car racing on both those circuits. And it was a bit of an education. Um, it's fair to say, I think the teams, the drivers enjoyed Dubai more as a track and probably Yas Marina more as uh, a facility. Um, in terms of the ability for us to be able to cover those races in the depth that we would have liked to have done. Um, by the way, before we go any further, uh, a, a massive, massive pat on the back uh, to the debuting for TV, uh, Oliver Gavin. Um, absolutely adored the time we had in that booth together. I hope that showed. I know there was some production um, challenges that were noted by viewers. We had a couple of road cameramen, I believe, in Dubai. Things got rather better towards the end in Yas Marina, but there was no shortage of action. Um, <sighs> we've ended up with worthy champions. Uh, we've ended up with storylines that are still to emerge. I know there's, there's questions about a couple of the teams and their efforts. Jota with their new look squad, with Sean Galeel, uh, with uh, Stoffel van Dorn, with Tom Blomqvist. And in particular, a young man, which uh, I've noted at least one question, um, is asking for my opinion. I think a man we're going to be hearing a lot more of as he becomes a man rather than a boy. And that's a young Argentinian by the name of Franco Colapinto. So lots more to emerge from this MP. I'll make an apology now to uh, regular listeners to this podcast that also readers of Daily Sports Car. I had absolutely no time. Uh, to catch up with a whole lot of things I hope to do at that time. And I'm playing catch up here this week and next whilst I'm in the Gulf and while well, I'm self-isolating because I've got to do that when I get home for the following two weeks. Uh, so many storylines to do with lessons learned in terms of what we could be doing in trying circumstances with calendars, the way in which teams are communicated with and communicate back, uh, the way in which the marketplace and, and the driver marketplace, particularly at MP2, is evolving. Um, what it is should be the shape of the ACO calendar moving forward. The undeniable truth that that was a format, albeit exhausting, that, that actually attracted a huge grid, relatively speaking, for the Asian Le Mans series. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to get an opportunity, MP, you and or I, to catch up with Cyril Teshvalen from the Asian Le Mans series for a post, once he's had a, fit, a bit of sleep, by the way, uh, a post-season opportunity to talk to him about lessons learned. And I think you'll you'll find his input very interesting indeed. I, I think there's lots of, uh, of lessons to be drawn from it. I think we had 16 hours of pretty entertaining racing on and off. Um, and I think we'll be hearing a lot more about some of the players that we saw for the first time in that sort of racing as things move on. Final thing to say, by the way, is the one breaking news story we had today about Asian Le Mans, which is GPX Racing, uh, hot off the heels of appealing the results in Yas Marina for race two and then deciding not to pursue that appeal to the FIA court, have also decided today that they will not pursue their entry for Le Mans. I've already seen a few slightly acid comments on social media about this being sour grapes about the repeal. It's not that at all. They are simply an emerging team that's had success, but on the process of changing their service provider. They're moving to ART, I believe, as their 
uh, race service provider. That is a substantial change for them, and they have made the determination that right now investing in presumably a one-off race for the time being in GTE um, is not the right moment whilst they're making other major strategic moves. It's not the right moment to be going to Le Mans. It's something I expect them to do in the future. They want to do it on their terms, and now is not the right time. But GPX Racing is a team we're going to be hearing more of, no doubt about that. So that wraps some of that up. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you probably pick out from the, the Wekaslam's Elms and Echo list. I think that's probably where we're going to go first, MP. Well, um, some more. Yeah, some you're the more selectors. The, um, we go where uh, you tell us to. Let's go with that for starters. But uh, uh, the final, final thing to say, by the way, is because we've got a lot of feedback on social media about both the series in general, about the broadcast in particular. Thank you so much for being so engaged. Uh, my apologies that, again, um, yeah, there wasn't quite the time I would normally like to, to, to dedicate to, you know, uh, getting waded in with our good friends on Reddit and Discord and, you know, on Facebook groups and uh, on Twitter. But uh, the workload for a variety of reasons was pretty heavy in that booth. Um, and we did our best to bring the show to the biggest audience we possibly could, and that's the people watching. We will do better moving forward. Um, but uh, unfortunately, choices had to be made about my available mental space uh, for those 16 hours. And uh, the little bit of, I've given me myself the moment to watch back, um, I'm happy with what you were hearing. Um, and I'm, I was absolutely delighted that Surreal Teixeira chose the man he did to sit alongside me in the booth. Uh, and I think young Mr. Gavin has got a future uh, as a television pundit, no doubt whatsoever. Well, that first career of his as a driver didn't quite pan out, so... Uh, just, uh, no, it didn't quite take off, did it? A broadcast lifeline. That's what I love here. <laughs> Absolutely. All righty. Well, we have a bit of a subset to start in Weck Aslan, Elms, Aco, Your World. Uh, that being... Asian Le Mans series, funnily enough, and okay. I know I mention this every now and then, but I do love how the Asian Le Mans series has gone from being a fringe random thing that yep. really was not something the least bit comparable to anything found in yep. the WEC, ELMS, etc. I love how it is just re continues to rise uh, to a place of, uh, I would say, what? parallel stature almost i'm not saying in terms of importance and otherwise but just as a professional endurance racing property within the uh the family there of WAC and elms it really has i think come to a place where folks look forward to it they know to look for it and it's again it's become a real thing so for that i'm happy and we go to chris mock first question here graham any predictions coming into the last two rounds here and this is something i wanted to hold and use to open here knowing that while this was sent in prior to last weekend yep. we know the results from last weekend this i thought was a great opportunity for us thanks to chris to talk about what you thought might happen going into yep. the finale versus what did happen give us some compare and contrast Absolutely. Well, you know, Chris is absolutely right. He uh, points here to the stoic um, reliability of particularly the 26G drive car uh, with Yifei 
uh, with Ferdinand Habsburg and with Rennie Binder. Um, you know, a, a trio that I think coming into this series, you would have thought that's solid, but not spectacular. Um, actually, they proved to be both solid and at times very spectacular. Uh, I'd looked pretty much ironclad whilst all around them seemed to go wrong, uh, particularly for Jota Sport, particularly. And he, you know, he wouldn't thank me for saying this, but I think he might agree on reflection. Sean Galel had a couple of poor races in Dubai uh, to the extent that you would have you'd been forgiven for a belief that that might have shattered his confidence in such a short period of time to go before Yas Marina. Not helped by the fact that day two at Yas Marina, I think it was, that Tom Blomqvist had an absolutely enormous shunt. Um, you know, going from 220 kilometers an hour to zero in, I think, less than 30 meters. Um, uh, the car pretty much destroyed. They were very lucky that the chassis was, uh, whilst damage was not critically damaged, it was repairable on site. But I saw that car and rebuild a number of times. And trust me, they built a new Orica in that garage. And from that point forward, you would have been forgiven for Jota Sport for Sean Galeal and for Tom Blomquist to kind of curl up at a corner and just have a quiet sob to themselves. They didn't, and they came out, and what a brilliant couple of races they drove. Sean Galeal, an Ironman stint uh, in the first race. And what I think it showed there is real fire in the belly uh, for a man that's, you know, perhaps divided the audience a little with um, the, the you know, his prior career. But he's clearly got speed. He's clearly got resilience. He's got fight. Uh, the G-Drive effort, principally, they were there not just to win and to win what they did, which, of course, was a uh, automatic entry for Le Mans, but also for Roman Rusinov, who was uh, on site but not driving, to make some choices about the shape of the European Le Mans series crew to come because uh, a number of options are still available to him, particularly the silver driver. Um, and I think that dynamic kind of came into play. Uh, we've got effectively two drivers fighting for that uh, that seat, Yifei Ye, and a Chinese Formula driver, by the way, in his first sports car week, uh, two weekends, and the Mercurial Franco Colapinto, and our 17-year-old uh, driver from Argentina, who until last year nobody had heard of him and there's a good reason for that he'd done next to no racing he is in the management of uh, Jamie Campbell Walter uh Ye, by the way is in the management of the Yanni family that being Neil Yanni and his father and in fact Ife has been living with Neil Yanni's family for something like five years and what a thoroughly pleasant young man he was can i go uh, ahead and request a pairing of uh Yifeye and Ije elge and uh we would have the all unpronounceable team possibly and it's <laughs> it's i it's myself to be honest i just would fail it's, every time it, but yeah it's it's just a pleasure to see people <sighs> discovering the part of the sport that I'm passionate about and you're passionate about. And in the case of Franco Colapinto, um, he did, they didn't have the runs they wanted. Uh, the first race at Yas Marina, they were hampered by a bit of finger trouble and an engine change that meant that the thing was dropping oil throughout. I think they added 20 litres of oil to that car during what? the race. 
<laughs> 20 litres. <laughs> 20 litres. Uh, but the speed, um, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, talking to Ollie about this and, and afterwards to Jamie Campbell-Walter, the one thing the grid lacked... Um, uh, in in terms of what was on site for us, was an established top of the line LMP2 gold or platinum driver. We didn't have a Felipe Albuquerque there, you know. We didn't have a Paul Lipschatan there. We didn't have, you know, a Paul DeResta there. We had a lot of other emerging stories. We had a Kelvin Van der Linde and Nicky Team, and they both drove brilliantly. I thought in the Phoenix Racing car, but we didn't have an established yardstick. That's the one thing that was missing. But make no mistake, and I know we come on a little later to Josh Barrett asking uh, about uh, Franco Colapinto. I can only defer to a conversation. There was a bit of a group conversation about Franco um, with Ollie Gavin involved, with Jamie Campbell-Walter involved and others. And Ollie was watching and watching carefully. And Ollie's conclusion was, you know, in equal conditions in pretty much equal cars on the same track at the same time. Franco Colapinto was not a tenth faster than anybody else out there. And bear in mind, remember who else we had out there. Stoffel van Dorn was out there. Okay. Nicky team was out there. Um, he was six to seven tenths of a second faster on average over those uh, stints. I mean, six to seven tenths. And you know, there were very few, yardsticks out there that were anything other than impressive and in some ways a better still uh, yardstick in that Nicky and uh, Kelvin van der Linde may not have a lot of LMP2 experience but they do have sports car racing experience they do have multi-class racing experience and they too were stepping into an LMP2 for the very first time so in some ways you could argue that's a, a very adequate uh, yardstick uh, the final conclusion here, what do I think of Franco Colapinto? I think he could be very, very, very special indeed, is the straight answer. I think he's a major discovery. Um, there is clear, absolute potential there that just needs now to find the right um, outlet for it. And speaking entirely selfishly, I hope he finds it in sports cars. I, I sincerely believe, though, that if there's sensible people out there with budget to allocate, anybody out there at the very top of motorsport should take a look at this young man and, and how things go in the next year two or three. Um, but that was absolutely one of the exciting parts of the top end of that grid was when he was on track, be sure you were looking. Going back just a little bit, Stuart Hart, was hoping to get your thoughts on Yas Marina joining mm-hmm. the calendar. Um, wet calendar, um, which I know it's been looked at before. They've certainly showed interest. I like Yas Marina. I think Yas Marina is a spectacular venue. I really do. Um, there were lots of uh, conversations about the way in which that that um, circuit has held its age. It's not aging. It looks pristine. And when you compare it with, let's say, for the sake of arguing, Shanghai, not dramatically different in terms of age, but fundamentally different in terms of the way in which it's weathered that that interim period. Um, Do I think that would suit a wet race? Uh, I'll I'll say this much. 
it was not the favourite circuit of most of the drivers in the, in the grid. I think they found um, it's particularly after the second long straight uh, down by the support pits. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to use a phrase they didn't use, but so that they found it all a bit Mickey Mouse, very difficult to pass, uh, lots of potential for incidents, etc. Um, so I think if it was down to the choice of competitors, maybe not. Um, but as a facility to go and work at and with, the uh, facility were nothing other than excellence personified in the welcome they provided to absolutely everybody in, let's face it, what were anything other than standard and absolutely challenging circumstances with you know, COVID restrictions, not only being there when we got there, but uh, changing by the day. Uh, they were a very welcoming uh, place to kind of land for that uh, that final weekend. Uh, will I complain if WEC went there? Not at all. Not at all. An absolute delight to visit uh, the circuit in Abu Dhabi. Um, and, you know, on a personal front, uh, you know, we got an absolutely spectacular welcome, as we as we often do as the, the kind of racing family. Um, as we often do, and it's it's interesting to see that with the influx of major motorsport events into this region, that you'll often find just nuggets of interest. Much as Bahrain gets a lot of flack for not drawing a crowd to the WEC, I can tell you this much: we walked into the hotel here, um, and uh, I'd, I'd reason to have a chat with the concierge at the hotel here. And uh, he asked whether or not we were here because F1 is setting up for testing in two weeks' time. Explain what we were there to do. And he said, oh, sports car racing. He says, I, I, I really love the WEC. I was watching the Asian Le Mans series last weekend. And at that point, of course, I had to tell him in which case you were watching this guy and me. And th- there are those nuggets of interest that are beginning to form into a bit of a fan base in different parts of the world. And whilst it is sad that we've not got international sports car racing at Silverstone uh, in the coming year, uh, it is sad that we're not going to have fans at a lot of the venues for some time little yet. I think people are going to have to start to adjust their level of (sighs) expectation about what's going to be achievable in other parts of the world. Because here's the thing, I think it's developing an audience it, it may be kind of just tiny green shoots at the moment, but while they keep putting together venues of this quality and with welcomes to the people spending the money of that quality, the reality is that the European venues that possibly think that train set is all theirs are going to have to up their game a little bit. And a lot of that is not the areas, Marshall, where you have to spend the money. A lot of that is in the welcome, the attitude, the outlook, uh, just to go the extra mile to make sure that people feel as if their investment of time and money is being rewarded with the kind of response that we'd all like socially. That, that's it, really. But uh, yes, Marina, we'll wait and see. I think the, uh, the lessons were noted by the ACO. Um, it's going to be interesting to see in the next few weeks and months just exactly what emerges uh, in terms of you know a calendar or calendars plural, which investigate the opportunities that the golf has shown this this last couple of weeks. 
Beautiful. Let's see. Let's stick with uh, Stuart for a moment. Ask him about, could we see the Asian Le Mans series adopting these double race weekend formats full-time going forward? Um, I, I, I think, I don't think they would want to do this format back-to-back weekends with back-to-back races. That was incredibly taxing. A grind. Uh, clearly but, a grind. But, yeah, but a kind of Friday, mon- a Friday Sunday doubleheader, um, I, th- I, you know, I think you can't ignore the fact that that's got some appeal. Um, it's got risk, but it's got appeal as well. And you know, I'm, I'm happy to say we have got people in the sport now that are not afraid to take a few risks. And I'd like to see some of those risks taken. You know, I know when the the, the um, it's been shaken up before, and you know, yes, I'm fully well aware that when the WEC decided to change the shape of their uh, racing calendar and introduced eight-hour races and four-hour races. There were some squeals about the fact that the four-hour races went to circuits that have got long history and the eight-hour races went to races where they didn't have an audience. Um, I get that, but I, I certainly I was approached by a reasonably senior race year official in, and not surreal, by the way, um, in um, Dubai and asked for some feedback. I gave that feedback absolutely fulsomely, and it started with, you cannot avoid the lessons that this should be teaching everybody. And by the way, here in the A, B, C, D, and E, and F are exactly what those uh, lessons should be. And it wasn't limited to race formats. It was limited to the openness uh, and the communication that has drawn that grid together and kept it there. That's the critical point here. You know, having named a 38-car grid at the start of this, and yes, we lost absolute racing uh, to COVID travel restrictions out of China. To retain 36 cars in as challenging a set of circumstances as I've experienced at any race meeting um, was a quite remarkable endeavor. Um, and for all the drivers to be there and for all the team members to be there and getting that support day in, day out. And then beyond that, to then get the news as we arrived that uh, the UK governments were going to require a pretty substantial proportion of that paddock to uh, hotel quarantine at no little cost. I mean, I'll say this much. I think I'm, I may have edged towards this. I, I think that decision from... Um, Mr. Johnson and uh, and friends, uh, which I'll say openly right now. Who's Mr. I don't Johnson? Think, uh, it, he sometimes is called by his first name, but I can't bring myself to do it. It makes me feel physically sick. Um, is the honest answer. Our Prime Minister. Okay. Um, uh, is the is I think the cost ultimately to the is it seven British teams in the paddock probably is going to top a million dollars. Um, of that decision, and it bears no relationship at all to the risk that those people um, presented in terms of either COVID or its uh, or its various variants. And I, I'll say this much: I was witness to the huge emotional distress and upset that, that caused to a number of people that I actually care about. You know, that have tried so hard to look after themselves and their people, um, and. Uh, continue to provide employment for these people and have continued to make sure that the services are put in place to protect them. You know, I cannot tell you the level 
of attention to detail that has gone into COVID testing um, to uh, preventative, you know, for, for PPE to be provided, and by the way, to make sure that the attitudes that need to be uh, need to be maintained are respected within the working environments. You you would barely see someone not wearing a mask or PPE and or PPE when required, and quite often when they were, it was simply you know taking a breath in what was pretty warm conditions, particularly in Dubai, and then being reminded quite often by a teammate. You know, mask, mate, mask. Um, it's that's that's been a real part of how tough this has been, Marshall. Is you know you're having to find the strength to get yet another travel plan together. For in the case of I mean United Autosports, I think travel with 50 people. That's 50 times 1,750 UK pounds that you are looking at finding from nowhere. Um, and yet it was done and there's been a variety of solutions arrived at and a lot of the guys are in hotels in the UK. And if you're listening to this, all joking aside, I hope you're all well. I hope you're keeping your spirits up. I've seen some hilarious stuff on social media. Keep doing it. Um, you know, it's show them that, you know, you're the good guys you are and girls, by the way, plenty of uh, fantastic uh, girls up and down the paddock in the Asian Le Mans series and beyond. And, it's that that if there was one fact that made this just too difficult, it was that it was the UK team's um, trauma at this. Uh, and for what it's worth, MP, I have spent time in the last ten days um, in a room privately with someone I care about in that community um, who employs a lot of people and does so in an exemplary fashion. And that man was in tears because that man was staring down the barrel of a gun at losing his business through this. That cannot be what this is about. It can't be that that is an adequate level of risk that you've followed every rule throughout. You've maintained your commitments to your customer base to retain a company that employs a substantial number of people. And then you're kicked in the bollocks by a stupidly small-minded decision that is done for one reason and one reason alone, which is to appeal to a political base. It's that that is, I think people are finding. We're all in this together, and we're all prepared to go the extra mile. We've been doing it for, you know, for almost a year now, and it's the the knowledge that this isn't aimed at professionals in motorsport. Um, it's aimed at presumably risk takers. But the way in which this was done, and particularly on the basis of, you know, I'm proud of my nation, not very much at the moment, I'll be honest with you, but they've done nothing to protect the borders uh, about COVID, nothing at all uh, in the last year. And I am a a guy that's travelled across those borders, you know, well into double figures since July. And I can tell you I've been asked to, other than a passport, present one piece of paperwork to the point where I visited Dubai in January for the 24H series. And since then, things have got a little tighter. But even coming back from there, no one has to see a single piece of paper on arrival in the UK. And yet all of a sudden, from that point, two weeks later, they've deemed it necessary to have 100 more people from that paddock sitting in hotels unable to earn a living, unable to see their families, you know, and spending the better, thick, well, certainly well over $2,000 for the privilege. It's wrong. 
um, you know, there needs to be some acceptance of the need to maintain, you know, some semblance of reasonable commercial life if those people and those organizations have taken the trouble that they've got to protect themselves and others. And that's just not been present. That's enough for the soapbox because, you know, I think everybody out there is fed up and bored with it. And, and so am I. And, you know, it's, it's got to change. And by the way, Motorsport UK, our um, national association has got to step up and do more with this. That's, it's not acceptable that those, those organizations should be put under that pressure. Oh, by, by the way, are the individuals. Let's not forget these people are people. Let's not forget that these people are people you know, are just, people. Someone should yeah, write yeah, a song are, about you know, that. that. People, it should write a song. It's, it's almost poetic, isn't it? But that you know, these are people trying to earn a living. And you know, if if I have to express it in terms that a government would understand, they're trying not to cost the government money. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying not to be burdensome. They're trying to kind of move forward and show an example and look after themselves and their families. And I'm, I'm worried, MP, that seeing some of the, the tone of the commentary about this, particularly across social media, we're sort of going down the road that your nation's been down. And we're going down it. I think I used the phrase last time we spoke, which was, it was in relation, it was, to Antonio Garcia uh, and COVID blaming. Just Get off that, guys. Get off it. You know, this, these are not people who don't care. These are not people who aren't trying hard. These are people who are trying very hard indeed and have been trying very, very hard for as long as anybody else in this game has been. And they need help, not criticism. And they need certainly not fingers pointing saying, you knew you're, what you were getting into. No, they didn't. They committed to contracts. They committed to jobs, as I did. And we're fulfilling our promise to the people around us. And that deserves more respect than you know sitting in a small travel lodge in Hounslow with what equates to a packed lunch and a bloke in a high vis fest standing outside the door stopping you from going out for a walk you know it's it's wrong it's just not the way this should be then they're, they're they're not the ones putting it putting the public at risk not in any way whatsoever it needs a rather more complex solution that's enough about that isn't it sure uh we're gonna yeah. go to two more in this category first one being from Ewan a.k.a. SRA Smoking Puppy 841. Excellent. With the success of the Middle Eastern Asian Le Mans Series swing this year, Graham, do you think a UAE-based yep. Asian Le Mans Cup could be something to consider for the future? I think all bets are off, I think is the straight answer. There's a whole range of things that could happen here. Um, I hope that Cyril Tejfarland is given the opportunity to e explore and exploit that um, on the back of the kind of the Asian series. He's certainly very committed indeed to us going back to um, Southeast Asia when that's possible. Um, but he is, you know, you've spoken to him and obviously I have as well. He is a smart cookie. He's very customer focused and he's been listening to what the people in the paddock were saying that the big thing not to ignore, apart from the fact that the Middle East was clearly um, both accessible and popular this time is the number of teams that were in that paddock that have never been in a, a, an Asian Le Mans series or, frankly, any other ACO rules race before. And I can tell you, because I spoke to most, if not all of them, that they were impressed. Um, you know, the likes of 
GPX Racing, who you know who won't be going to Le Mans, but would thoroughly enjoyed their time. Richard Herbeth, who Robert and Alfred Renard on the podium after the race, uh, the final race, just overcome with the fact that their team is going to Le Mans. That's what's going to happen next, and it, it gave a lot of teams that otherwise wouldn't have had that opportunity to just sniff that possibility. I got the sense that a number of them liked what they saw and what they experienced, and that's going to be a good thing. Uh, a Middle East Cup, distinctly possible. I, I, I could probably write a, an entire um, one side of A4 on the uh, the number of different opportunities and options that now sit in front of the ACO with what essentially to them is a new marketplace. Um, I would just say this, if if anyone's listening cares, which is, just give the guy who took it there in the first place the opportunity to show what's possible now and support him. Um, you know, it's it's time that stopped being treated as a bolt-on. It's time that started being treated far more as part of the family. It's absolutely time that we started seeing more collaboration between the Continental Series than we're currently seeing. It's, it's you know, so much more is possible with so little of a change in outlook and attitude from so few people. And I think if they miss that opportunity, they may live to regret it. Not in terms of the LMDH level stuff in 2023, but in terms of the the uh, the structure that will support that through in the next decade. Because we know, don't we, that, you know, GT, LMP3, LMP2 is where we've seen teams emerging that will be the teams behind the next generation or the generation after that of major factory prototype teams. It needs to be treated seriously and sensibly. And here's more to the point, get it right. And everybody makes money. Last question for you, just less of a question, more of a statement, but maybe you can opine on this as well. Rob Ball says, Graham, I wanted to say thank you to you and Oliver Gavin for the excellent job calling the Asian Le Mans series races. You two seem to have a great chemistry in the booth. And as a listener, uh, you make it like I'm watching the race with a couple of knowledgeable fans looking forward <laughs> to more of the same in the future. Tell me about what it was like sitting across from him. Tell me about the uh, feelings from inside because external praise is one thing, but we have a lot of criticisms, not necessarily the person sitting across from us, but mm-hmm. the performance we deliver tell me about what it was like sitting in there what things did you like what things do you want to improve next time around let's let's talk about ollie first so this is the first time that ollie had done he's done some radio before um and i think i'm right he may have done some color for one or two races before but he's not certainly not done a full series and he's not done a full series as intense as that because to be blunt nobody has i certainly hadn't um and Whilst I've met Ollie, of course, and I've interviewed Ollie on a number of occasions, and we've talked on the phone a number of occasions, I would not say that I knew Ollie well, and that's principally MP, as you recognised in your kind of opening statement at the start of the show, is the US is not my regular beats. Physical geography means that that's not possible. So I've spent a lot of time with Ollie over the last, now into the third week, and it has been an absolute delight. Um, we talked. I, we, we talked off uh, before we press record on this about a couple of shows that Ollie's agreed to uh, work 
on uh, work with me on over the next few days whilst we've got a bit of downtime here and i'm hoping we'll bring those to you on the marshall proof podcast in the coming weeks um if they come off they they could be kind of great fun i found him to be an excellent human being for one thing um he's got a really good take on you know the the on listening to advice where he needs to learn and giving advice where he's asked, uh, you know, in terms of some of the young and emerging drivers, I've observed, not at first hand, but from afar, the genuineness and the and the and the depth of advice and support that he's provided to some of the younger drivers in that paddock, um, which was again pretty inspirational stuff. Um, I'll say what I say finally here is what you hear on on air from Ollie is Ollie. That's him, you know, right there. And you would never have known, as far as I, from what I was experiencing in the booth, you'd never have known that Ollie was effectively a first timer at a full series of commentary. Um, and uh, I hope to be working with him again a lot, is a straight answer. Uh, it would be an absolute joy. We've got, um, he'll probably, you know, we've got several days here. Um, and we, we have a standing agreement that, uh, there's a bit of help I can give him with things and there's some bit of help he can give me with things. And and with the other guys we've got around uh, this hotel and elsewhere, um, there's there's quite a little motorsport community here for the next couple of weeks. And that's another kind of great thing. But thank you for your thanks. Um, that, and we, we had a lot of nice comments on social media about it. And I hope what we were filling in the booth was reflected by what you were hearing. I know at times it wasn't necessarily exactly what you were seeing. And there's some explanations for that, particularly in Dubai, where there were some shortcomings from a couple of uh, local guys that, that um, just did not do our production staff justice. Uh, I think some of those lessons were learned and some of those people were replaced by the time we got to Yas Marina, but um, you, you're always pushing forward and, you know, there was a process of feedback, a process of let's do this better that is common in just about everything I do in broadcast media, that post-race we do send wash-up notes to each other and to everybody else that's in a position to make a change. Um, as far as Ollie's concerned, he deserves uh, to have more and more opportunities to do this kind of thing moving forward, not least because, I, as I say, my view uh, he said he's very good at it um, and it flowed nat- uh, naturally and I think he's enjoyed it as well which is frankly just as important it's all very well being good at something but if you find it hateful <laughs> fateful to spend time with that thing and those people then that's not going to be a very long uh, long conversation is it but thank you for that um, and I'm pleased that at least some people um, found that something they wanted to watch I know the figures were very good I know we got you know big audiences around the world, and there's more to come with the highlight shows that'll be going out in the next few days as well. Um, and you know what? Feel free, social media, privately, um, just you know, drop me a message if there's anything you spotted that you think we could have done better, or you know, particularly for Ollie right now. Um, you know, I think he's looking for constructive criticism and feedback, but you know, if that comes his way, just because you think he's all round awesome. Number one, I think you're right. And number two, it would be nice if you heard it. There we go. Next subset 
in our mm. visit with Weck Elms ACO, and I'm going to make a little marker here because this is actually the one I've been waiting to get to the most. Oh, Graham, there was an announcement uh, <laughs> here that there is a change in the uh, Michelin Le Mans Cup. Oh, boy. Uh, do you want to tell folks what the change is before we get into it? Because, yeah, it's, oh it's, it's, long, it's long-winded, but here's the weird thing here, Marshall, and I didn't write about it. Uh, there's a reason I didn't write about it, because I already wrote about it in December. Sneaky bronzes. Got to gotta yes, rid the world which, of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, here's the odd thing, is the only surprise here that's been, ex- that's been expressed to me by those this directly affects is that it's not come to the LMS because that is where, if there's a problem, that is where the problem most probably lies. Okay. Um, I think what we're seeing here is, is a combination of two things. It is impossible to ignore the fact that we've had the same champion in terms of team in the Michelin Le Mans Cup for the past four years. Well, let's tell folks, those who don't know about this, let's tell them what, the rule changes up front so they can understand the context. So to effectively what this will do is to directly add a penalty by way of pit stop time to bronze ranked drivers teams where the bronze effectively exceeds the performance of the prevailing silvers. So it is a direct penalty. And in, in terms that the world of social media would understand, um, it's a penalty for being fast. That's it. So this is a case where of the four driver rating levels with bronze being the bottom, platinum being the top, gold being next below that, and silver below that, there's a separation in driver ratings uh, produced by the FIA that says pros are gold and platinum above the silver line. Amateurs are silver and bronze bronze really meant to be the true gentleman gentlewoman driver not a pro by any means uh would probably aspire to get better in whatever series they're racing in that uses driver ratings to categorize them uh Mm -hmm. use their exploits in that series to hopefully get better and one day be uh, appraised by the FIA as a silver and get bumped up in rating because their performance yep. uh, demonstrates the worthiness of being a silver. This new rule says, hey, we highly restrict who can race these cars based on driver ratings. And knowing that the bronzes are meant to be nothing like a silver or any, you know, yep. silvers, again, we talk about it's an amateur ranking, but more often than not, silvers demonstrate pro-like qualities. And so mm-hmm. this rule, new rule, says, hey, if the bronzes are demonstrating pace and aptitude that is close to or mirrors a silver, well, we're going to implement a new pit stop penalty uh, yep. system that makes you sit on pit lane for X amount of time extra to compensate uh, or basically to take back the time we don't think you should be producing on uh, on the track. Yeah. So I think the answer, the answer on this one is this. It is the race organizer's method of dealing with the wider problem, which is the system is broken. Um, now, my attitude to this for quite some time is there are two – 
there's one specific change I think that needs to be made immediately, and there's one specific issue that needs to be gripped fulsomely. The the change that needs to be made immediately is the the, the platinum platinum has to go. It just has to go. Um, it is you know it 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 doesn't serve the interests of the current marketplace in any way, shape, or form. Platinum would have been useful or more useful in a marketplace where we had a surplus of factory programs. And if you want to know what how you get to be a platinum driver, take a look at the FI website. The conditions for the, the four rankings are all there in black and white. But in, the, in, in terms that people can understand, somebody who's operated in Formula One would automatically be a platinum. Uh, people who've had a factory contract uh, at a high level would also be a platinum. Um, so platinum at the moment, because we've lost team, oh, sorry, uh, program after program from factory level, um, platinum also places restrictions on what you can do in a driver combination. And, you know, you've written pretty recently, I think a couple of stories, MP, about drivers have been caught out by that process uh, that are basically sitting there and unable to get their uh, their feet kind of back on the rungs of the ladder simply because of their driver ranking. That is not what this should be about. It shouldn't be about that. It should not be about restricting the opportunities for professional drivers to be a professional driver. That is wrong and needs to stop right now. Um, the second thing is, it is, I think it's encapsulated rather oddly not by the bronze issue but by silver. Silver is just too broad a church. It you know ranked from highly established uh, professional drivers who just have not yet achieved at that level through young uh, aspiring professional drivers. Franco Colapinto is a great example of it. Somebody who's blindingly quick but has not yet won anything um, that, that kind of qualifies him as a gold uh, through to just the more capable um, non-professional drivers. So I think if you were to look at the kind of if, – if every lap time had the same kind of delta let's say a reasonably quick driver could drive a lap in a minute okay you would expect the best golds and platinum to be doing that in 57 seconds and the probably the average bronze to be doing that in um in a minute and six six or seven maybe four two who knows okay the problem with silver is it's too broad a church and it covers uh, people who are grazing the kind of form that a a gold or a platinum would be going, uh, right down to people who might be half a second quicker than a bronze, and that's that's having knock-on effects on the whole of the rest of the marketplace. Silver needs to be reviewed as a matter of urgency. There's no doubt in my mind that that's been the case for quite some time. Platinum needs to go. That would start to solve some of these problems because the inevitability is that, that would then have a knock-on effect in the way in which bronze operates. The, the only other alternative to, to sort this marketplace out, and now is the time to do it with the marketplace about to radically change, is to give it a root and branch reform. And the fact that we've not had that review at all in the time that this system has been in operation, that what we've had is a little bit of tweaking at the edges. The fact there's not been a wholesale review, I think is proof positive that actually this is now outdated. 
You know, is there a need for some kind of ranking system? There probably is. It's not my favourite subject, but it probably is. It, it, I have the same kind of feelings about driver rankings as I do about BOP. Am I a fan of it? No. Does it provide um, an answer to a set of questions that are difficult to answer? Yes. Um, but if you're going to have a system, and in particular if you're going to then charge drivers for that system, which is what the FIA do, then you've got to keep that system relevant for the marketplace within which it's operating. Right now, it is not, which is why you're getting um, IMSA. I know I've had issues with FI driver rankings before. SRO certainly have uh, in terms of the way in which the, uh, the, 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 you know, they will apply their own kind of judgment to some of those, those drivers. Um, and now we're getting into it with kind of ACO racing uh, rules uh, as well, which, frankly, I think is long overdue. Um, my view is it needs to be looked at. It needs to be looked at urgently. And now is the time to look at it if we're going to be ready for what comes next in 2023 um, with LMDH, with the potential for a uh, root and branch uh, look at what's going to happen in GT racing as a pro or pro-am formula as well. We know that's on the way in and coming. I'm sort of perplexed as to why they haven't grasped the nettle and looked at this. But, um, you know, You'd like to think, wouldn't you, that sporting bodies reading the kind of response that that announcement had would kind of say, did we think of this? You know, but for me, I'm guided with this specific one by two things. Um, do I like it? No. Uh, is it correct? No. Uh, are there alternatives? Yes. Have they looked at the alternatives? I'd like to think so. Uh, are they aiming at the right target? <sighs> If it's, in, if it's in Michelin Le Mans Cup this year and it has what they deem to be the correct effect, it's coming to another championship near you. Be sure of that. No, no doubt whatsoever about that. No matter how many acid comments appear on Twitter or Facebook, trust me that this is being trialled for a wider rollout. I've no doubt about it. Um, so it does mark, I'm, I'm afraid, a further deterioration of trust in the FIA system and it's for the FIA to respond to that you know if what they've been told is your system doesn't work anymore which is effectively I'll ask you MP is, is that what you'd suggest that's telling me the driver system doesn't work it's the only conclusion you can come to if you feel the need to actually put another rule on top to effectively equalize a system designed to equalize then the equalization system doesn't work true Yes, uh, very, very true. Let's get some questions on this change going here. Jens Jensen, Jens Jensen, isn't the bronze? Jens Jensen. Yes, yeah. I know, but I like the double JJ, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, isn't the bronze rating penalty thing not just a replacement for the previous, uh, previous success pit stop handicap uh, that has been? In the Le Mans Cup for years, that's how I read it. So individual drivers are getting a success handicap instead of the car itself. Um, I don't think it's been in place for the LMP3 cars. I know we had some uh, success ballast in place for GT. Jens, would, by the way, should know because uh, he shares the, the uh, press room with me, uh, the European Le Mans series, merging talent in Danish endurance reporting. It is a very welcome thing. So thanks for the question, Jens. Um, I'm not sure it's a straight answer. My recollection is it's GT cars that get those those um, those penalties, but I'll check that. 
I just think it's another. I'm I, I finding this one difficult to come to conclusion that it's anything other than trying to make it more difficult for DKR Engineering to win a fifth title. Uh, why otherwise is it in that championship? I can, I can tell you right now that successful team owners in the ELMS, when um, we were talking about this rule, were stunned, and I mean stunned, that they'd done it there in the Le Mans Cup and not in the ELMS. Mm. Uh, you know, I'll leave you to guess who those team owners might have been, but um, they were surprised that it was in one and not the other when most of the moaning and groaning about um, fast bronzes is in the LMS and not in the long cup. So uh, another reason why I say it's probably on the way there. So uh, it is another, Jens, it is another example of a kind of malady that that's, I think is is pretty prevalent in motorsport, which is we've got this big rule book. We've found a problem. What we're going to do now is to add another proviso into that rule book rather than stepping away from the rule book and seeing it's fit for purpose in the first place. It, you know, it, we're effectively crisis managing around an existing text and that doesn't often produce a very satisfactory and sustainable result. Let's, let's hashtag wait and see whether or not it does. One or two more on this driver rating change here. Our pal Andrew Baxter, a.k.a. Mr. Baca, says, can we award the Lamar Cup with the award for the worst driver ratings policy ever, given their decision to penalize bronze drivers if they're as fast as silvers? We need to skip past the taking a step back and reevaluating ratings and dope slap whomever came up with this one. Where does this rank, Graham? Uh, there's nothing, by the way, to stop a championship organizer from basically saying we're not accepting you as a bronze. There's nothing to stop them from doing that. Nothing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly aware of conversations. I've been part into conversations where championship organizers have basically refused to, to accept a silver-silver um, driver combo. Uh, the one I'm thinking of immediately was British GT, who refused to accept two Nissan GT Academy drivers as a silver-silver pairing for the championship because they recognized that that pairing would put off long-standing and therefore good-paying long-term customers, so they refused to accept that entry. You know, there's more or less every, every set of regulations that I'm aware of um, does have a proviso somewhere in a small print that basically says, the organizer's decision is final. Um, they're trying to firefight an issue. Uh, it looks really boneheaded. Um, I've not had an opportunity to speak to the rule makers personally. And, you know, as those with long memories will remember, um, I came out from a long conversation with none other than Stefan Mattel if not persuaded, but certainly rather more understanding of a, a number of decisions he'd made about his package hey, uh, of this racing. This is a family show. Easy. Yeah, Stefan Steph Rattel's package. Uh, hashtag. Um, that I came out from that conversation, at the very least, understanding far more clearly why he'd made the decision. Okay. Was it a kind of a moment of epiphany that meant that all of my objections to it faded away? No, it wasn't. But it was certainly... Um, a lot easier to understand why he'd made the decision 
having had that conversation. So I will reserve my final judgment for a wider conversation that I'm about to have with somebody who will be in a position to give me some more background than we've currently had the opportunity to do. But I'll, I'll say this again, uh, you know, Andrew, this is a rule that has been in place since December of last year. And the reality is we wrote about it then. And uh, I'm sort of at a loss as to why the kind of the world has all of a sudden jumped into the air with surprise when this was written about in the clear. I think it was something like the 15th of December when they announced these real, this real book. I get it. Um, I'm not a fan of it. I, I'm the opposite of a fan of it. Uh, I oppose it. Uh, but I'd like to hear from those that made these decisions as to their process of determination as to why this is the solution that they think is appropriate. Let's close on this comment, which mirrors my exact thought and something that I shared on the good old social medias coming from our friend Lance Snyder says, what's the point of having driver ratings where you're ranked based on your abilities and pace and you can't improve your ability or pace (laughs) or your team will be penalized for your improvement. That's the thing that totally agree. uh, This is the logic fail. That I believe it's Graham, broken. It's, whether, it's broken. Yeah, whether you know whether this has been around for a few months or not, I think for those who understand this arcane thing that we do in sports cars, and we give people ratings, and we say, well, you can or can't drive a car or in a series or whatever based on how you are rated. The thing that I believe, sorry, as I open up my little multivitamin uh, bag here. Um, the thing that I believe most people can grasp, even if they don't get all the complexities and nonsense that we throw into sports car racing is this. If there are four tiers of skill and you are at the bottom tier, you would in theory, if being ranked as a bronze, be at a place in your driving journey, be at a place where you are, with the most to learn and the most to improve. It's inherent in the rating. You as a bronze have a long way to go to be mm-hmm. a silver, gold, platinum potentially. Those are all options. The goal for every bronze that I know that races in a series like the Le Mans Cup, name every category where these ratings are used, you will find the bronzes, Graham, the ones who tend to have the biggest infrastructure around them for improvement, a driver coach, a Mm -hmm. fitness coach, a Mm -hmm. mental uh, coach, all kinds of things because you're at the bottom. You don't want to spend 10 or 20 years gradually improving yourself and getting to the next step. Every bronze that I know of wants to become a silver wants to move up, be seen as better, show improvement, mm-hmm. etc. to implement a system that says, hey, you're at the bottom and have the most to learn, and if you demonstrate to us that you're learning and improving, well, huh, guess what? Got a little gift for you. And since driver ratings are not something that are adjusted on the fly, hey, after round three, we decided you're now a silver. Hey, after round seven, you're now a gold. Since there's a bit of a, a 
structure put in place, Graham, a timeline of when reviews are made and when changes could be made to one's driver rating, there's just something a little bit precious here that I think people are cottoning on to of, so wait, we're the ones with the greatest likelihood of getting better and improving our lap times, and if we get too good or show too well compared to our silvers, you're going to smack us upside the head and limit our ability to succeed in a race? That, if you're trying to curb the thing that you well described in the beginning, the bronzes who are really needing to be reclassified as silvers got that part. That's a specific situation to try and address with individuals trying to put a blanket system that penalizes any and all bronzes for really showing that they're getting better and getting closer. That's the part that I think stands out to everyone is that's the dumbest rule. It's just the dumbest rule. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it strikes, I think everybody that, um, has been commenting on this. I've seen very little support for it, let's put it that way. Strikes evidence commenting on this as just being a kind of... It's basically using a sledgehammer to to tap in a thumbtack, isn't it? And it's it just... It's overkill. Uh, but I, I come back again, finally, because I know we're running out of time for this part of the show, MP, as what is broken here. Is it the process is it the rulemaking process beyond that what what is broken here and uh, the message i'm getting from this is that you've got a series of rulemakers that have been tended to be pretty good at this it's got to be said they're not you know immune to you know a cartoon anvil um falling upon uh, the rule book once in a while but they tend to be pretty good at this how bad has the as the situation got that they feel need to the need to take control in this manner. And I think the answer is, as with every real book, there is a very substantial chunk of the industry that surrounds it that is going to f- try to find ways around it. And that's the message I'm getting here is it's now too easy to game the rule book to the point where the rule makers have now decided to take, um, you know, individual action at a level at which has, has caused people to kind of throw their hands in the uh, you know, the hands in the air, and it's um, it's the system. The system is wrong now. It's not appropriate for the times we live in. It's not appropriate for the way the marketplace has evolved. It's not appropriate for the way the marketplace is evolving. Come on, guys, you know, get your thumbs up wherever they are at the moment, and let's look at this in a collaborative fashion, dealing with. All of the um, the governing bodies in the the relevant um, championships dealing with the drivers themselves because it's their careers if you're professional and their money if they're not professional and you better be darn sure you're looking after that is the straight answer. Um, start a collaborative process. Start a review process. Do it now, okay? Because otherwise you're going to be chasing this in two and three years' time. It's time right now to understand that reform is needed. Yeah, I would just say the only thing that jumps out here is I think they got the penalty wrong. I think since we're always trying to uh, out and reveal sneaky silvers who should be classified as gold, I think they need to set a minimum 
gap expectation for silvers. And if you're not X amount faster than your bronze, well, you're actually the one who gets penalized and you get upgraded to uh, to gold right away. So maybe that's the <laughs> approach to take things. All right, we're done with this section, Graham. Where are we going next? Let's go to the general category. And I know we're pretty pressed on time, MP. So let's take a canter through those questions. And in what is a very, very busy week, I hope, I think it is going to be our last category. I hope we're going to have a chance to get to some of the other questions in a part two, maybe later this week. But if not, we'll roll them into next week's show. Sounds good. uh, You want want me to crack on with a couple of these? Uh, Yeah. And it looks like we only have a couple. Uh, Let's see. I'll just take this one here maybe we can grab chris mock mentions third attempt uh what are the advantages of having hybrid uh on all-wheel drive when it's only allowed in higher speeds does that help with acceleration traction at high speeds and or reduce tire wear etc also asked does all-wheel drive hybrid really give a significant advantage um that's worth 10 kilos of bo penis and lmh uh the corner exit acceleration advantage is curbed already so it's more about less tire wear plus less fuel consumption. I can answer the last part first, if that sure. helps, because I do have a little bit of insight on that one, which is the 10 kilos was done on the back of some pretty comprehensive sim testing that was done with the models of both the Toyota and the SEG 007. And I can tell you certainly that uh, it was done on the basis of performance advantage that was seen in those tests for the Toyota. And one of the other issues, you're absolutely right, Chris, by the way, is the one of the concerns, I think, is the Toyota showing significantly less tyre degradation um, through to you know a second stint on the same set of tyres, et cetera, et cetera. But as for the rest of it, MP, what say you? Yeah, I mean, that's the tyre the part is big. Another thing, and this is generalism, Chris, if we think about LMP1 hybrid, the giant explosion of acceleration off of corners, right? So the wow, you just got 500 plus electric ponies, uh, plus the internal combustion engines power all sent to whether it's rear wheel, front wheel, both wheels, whatever vehicle it was, we're talking about something that really took off and was amazing. We also then saw that pick the point down whatever major straightaway, uh, the electric ponies would run out. (laughs) So it was a bit of the, if you want to see these cars, and I mean, they, as I seem to recall, yeah, they all, except for the Nissan, had proper hybrid deployment. The most impressive aspect of these vehicles compared to anything else racing at the time was look at them leave. Oh my goodness. It just, again, mind blowing thing to witness. If you had not seen the cars fire out of a corner at a million miles an hour and we're seeing them for the first time towards the end of a straightaway, you would be impressed, but nothing that maybe stood out to comment on so much because they were at that point running on whatever maximum amount, amount of horsepower the internal combustion engine made and without the electric ponies, the show was not awesome from start to finish uh, in terms of acceleration to braking with this in theory, uh, knowing that some manufacturers will probably air 
harder, stronger on the electric portion of the power. Uh, some might go harder on the internal combustion engine, but either way with how this is lined up right now, Chris, with the safeguarding the non-hybrid cars from being blown out of the water, leaving the corners with how they have structured things in theory, we're going to be seeing really good acceleration out of the corners, but then, wow, the top speeds could be fairly impressive knowing that unlike the LMP one hybrid era, we should have electric ponies on display for the majority, if not the full run until the braking zones into first or second chicanes at Le Mans, for example, these are the kinds of things that I think might be a little bit more impressive to see how lap time is made. Of course, if you have an internal combustion engine, that's great. And if that's all you're using, no hybrid like Glickenhaus, you're going to have consistent power the whole time. In the case of the all-wheel drive, even if it was two-wheel drive, but for those who are using uh, hybrid power plants, my man, uh, you're going to get something that we probably haven't really seen in an impressive fashion when it comes to top end. Granted, there's a little bit of caveat knowing that the lap time target for Le Mans is significantly slower than LMP1 hybrid, but still, we're going to see something newish there. And so if I'm a manufacturer and I'm saying should I or shouldn't I, I would say yes, and we're doing it all-wheel drive because we are preserving tire life, as Graham has mentioned. This is yet another thing in the terms of BOP and trying to match the LMH with LMDH. It's going to be hard to do because you have this cool technology allowed in one formula that's going to help tire life where it won't necessarily be so much of a possibility in LMDH, which does not allow all-wheel drive, only rear-wheel drive. Um, But yeah, these are things where, heck, uh, I'm surprised that any manufacturer that doesn't do hybrid and all-wheel drive in uh, LMH Uh, definitely I think you're going to be struggling a little bit and that will be exposed. So uh, general thoughts there. We have, Graham, time for one more question. Uh, Kyle Brown, what do we go with his? So gents and MP, thanks, love the burn. (laughs) This is my second time submitting this question. You discussed using laps, lead, and fastest laps as ways to evaluate a car speed in the BOP's effectiveness at the Rolex 24. Are these the best metrics of pace over a stint or would something else be more telling? Says I have a massive spreadsheet of lap times from the race. Would love to know how motorsports professionals like yourselves determine which cars and drivers are fastest. Uh, Lord, I think for the most part, MP, it's a matter of looking at that massive spreadsheet of lap sheets and then determining which factors you're going to count out isn't it? So there's some blindly obvious ones like uh, laps under caution and in they're not necessarily in and out laps, but more difficult to anticipate. But there tends to be a kind of matrix. And we've lost Graham. Where has he gone? Is Graham coming back? Maybe he isn't. All right. Well, he might blurt in. Who knows? I'll just wrap this up here, Kyle. Depending on what data you have available, kind of things you're going to want to look at is sector information. That's where truths or deceptions tend to be revealed. 
So if we're looking at what kind of lap times uh, you are trying to parse through, uh, well, I would say, as Graham mentioned, you certainly need to weed out the ones that are uh, unimportant. That's a bit obvious of a statement. Uh, The things that I would say you really do need to try and lock into, if you can, um, if you can get to sector data, that's where the fun really stands out because then you're able to parse who is capable of doing what, say you mentioned Daytona on the infield versus the high banks and the straightaways. The things that I tend to look at when I'm looking through this, I haven't done it for the most recent race. I also know there are some racing series uh, who now make a pretty good attempt to strip uh, the availability of that information away uh, to avoid uh, either teams and rivals from diving into one another and (laughs) trying to make claims of who's accurate, who's inaccurate, who's cheating, who's not, but if you're just trying to figure out who's doing what, who's good at what, and where BOP might factor in, it's the, all right, what are we achieving? Corner entry, corner exit. What are we seeing in terms of top speed here or there? But even that, boy, uh, having a radar gun, which I do have, uh, a radar gun can be a lot of fun because you can pick some places on the track where you say, that's pretty important to know how cars are doing here. Uh, if you can say, okay, let's say all the top speeds are similar heading into turn one at Daytona. That's great. Does it mean all the cars are equal? No. <laughs> uh, does it mean that it took, or how's this? It doesn't mean that one car could achieve that top speed one second before braking, while the others, again, generalisms could have reached that top speed a quarter mile ago and so been at a higher speed for a much longer period of time. You can get a feel for a little bit of downforce as well, based on if you have cars that are performing very well on the infield, but not excelling on the banks and straightaways. There's also a lot of places to fudge things a little bit. All you have to do is break a tiny bit later uh, in some area to give the impression that you're charging Uh, but maybe coast just a little bit into another corner, just a tiny bit. Trust me, the deception part. And I know, I don't know if I'm giving you the exact stuff to look at because I don't know what you're looking at, but I'm just trying to give you some, or what you have to, uh, to look through, but just to give you some very general ideas, if you're talking Rolex 24, uh, I'm absolutely trying to parse who's doing what in the infield versus who's doing what in the straights. I'm trying to look at speeds coming into and out of the bus stop, for example, on the back stretch. Anything you can do to figure out who might be lagging a little bit intentionally into some of these places that really do affect overall lap time. Uh, if we're just talking BOP settings, these are the things that the series is looking for. This is the exact kind of stuff where the cops, the uh, technical police, are looking through data and saying, all right, where can we detect a tiny little lapse of getting on the throttle into this important corner? Oh, could we see just a tiny, tiny fudging into a braking zone here? We're not talking about much. We're talking about trying to conceal a tenth of a second, 
two, three at most, you add up two or three tenths of a second over a 45 hour long minute stint. That's a lot of time. So the deceptions, that's the hard stuff to try and track with publicly available data. It's the uh, real granular onboard data that uh, IMSA and other series are grabbing where they can dive in and go, uh-huh, we caught you. It's a little tiny thing, but you're doing it consistently, and we're not seeing that on other cars in your class. We got a bit of a problem. All right. Well, I am Marshall Pruitt. Uh, I'll also say thank you for Graham Goodwin, who's not here. Also say a huge thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Maybe we'll speak to you later in the week with more questions. If not, we'll be back in about seven days' time.